You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. The point here in all of this is that prayer fits all the circumstances that the congregation faces. It was true of the early church. It's true now as well. As a congregation, we should be bathed in prayer in all circumstances. When we're going through good times, when we're going through hard times, when people are sick, in all these situations, in any other situation that we can imagine, we need to be a people of prayer. Not lip service to prayer, not just the pastoral prayer during the worship service, but prayer in all of these forms. Could your prayer life use some improvement? You are not alone. In today's message, Pastor Tom teaches from the book of James about the power and importance of having a robust prayer life. It's not only important that you are spending time in prayer in private, but also that you're participating in corporate prayer with your congregation. Prayer is useful for any and every situation that you find yourself in. Take time today to utilize this powerful tool that God has given us to communicate with Him. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 5 with today's edition of Discover Hope. I think about prayer and trying to encourage us to prayer and James's teaching here on prayer. I consider in my own life and ministry, I have oodles of reasons to pray. There are heavy responsibilities I feel on my shoulder weekly, full range of ministry activities, counseling and leading ministries and training leaders and trying to get studies and teaching and meetings and things done. Each responsibility is a challenge, and we're dealing in church with things that are not merely a matter of business, not merely a matter of employment, but we're dealing with eternal consequences for souls and We're dealing with families. We're dealing with the development of ministries that need to go forward. We're really in enemy territory in church, and I feel the burden of that. I feel the burden of our being behind enemy lines and fighting a spiritual war and seeing so much of what Satan does to confuse and to discourage and to keep back the ministry and the church from going forward and being what it needs to be. And I don't really need a lot of incentive in my life to pray. It gets so heavy on my shoulders that it just forces me to my knees. And my hope is that as you involve yourself more in the purposes of God and in the work of God's ministry that you will sense and realize too your need to pray, that church and church work and the gospel work and evangelism is not merely about getting things arranged and communication being done. It is about conquering territory and holding back temptation and seeing souls won, and we will never get to that point in fulfillment of all that we want until we're more dedicated to prayer. It's just really that simple. God is design spiritual work to go forward by spiritual people and spiritual people are not spiritual people if they're not taking seriously prayer and even corporate prayer. So as we return to James chapter 5 and we're looking here at reasons to pray more, I'm hoping that in your conscience you will be thinking about that and letting that be impactful of your practice of prayer. 
The verses are 13 through 18, and we're in the midst of the chapter, in the midst of the paragraph, and pick up where we left off last time. Is anyone among you suffering? Verse 13, then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Reason number one we covered last time why we should pray more, simply because prayer is meant for all of life. We know the verses, pray without ceasing. Here we have examples of situations of life that were given to us. When should we pray? Answer, first, if you're suffering. That's the hard side of life. We talked about that last time. The term is a very broad term, just means the trouble that you run into, the trials that you face, whatever they are, a whole variety of them, from poverty to persecution, all kinds of relational issues. You should take those tough times not to stifle your prayers and have you angry at God for the way circumstances worked out in your life, but to force you to pray more than you've been praying up till now, to see and be dissatisfied with your prayer life and understand that those troubles and difficulties are push you beyond your normal prayer life, which probably is not as powerful as it should be, and to push you on to more prayer. God allows the suffering of believers to increase their dependence on him and strengthen them for the work that he has. Prayer and suffering is the right response to suffering. It brings back the right perspective, the eternal perspective that we need. Humble yourself in the presence of God and then he will do what? He will exalt you at the proper time. The opposite condition in life, still review from last time, is cheerfulness. That's not the joy in the midst of trials which we were exhorted toward in chapter 1. This is the station of life where everything is sunny and life is rolling along just the way that you want it to. In that condition, spiritually speaking, it's actually a more dangerous position to be in. When everything in life is just the way you want it, you tend to forget God. The Israelites did that and God had to warn them. Christians do that, and we have to be warned that when everything is sailing along well, you kind of decide, you know what, I don't know why I need God. And the answer is that every good thing in your life God gave to you, and he could take it away from you to get your attention if you'd like him to work that way. Or you can do the advice here in this passage, sing praises, be exalted, and realize that all that God has done deserves your thanksgiving. Amen? Deserves you to give back to him praise that he deserves. So either, either side of life, the really hard side, the really good side, neither one should you retreat from prayer is the point. And then there was a third circumstance, and that was sickness, and this was a special situation, and James spent some time with this, and we kind of walked through what happened here. First, this 
envisions in the early church someone in the congregation has become severely sick. By the way, that shows that not everyone was healed by the gift of healing automatically. They've become sick and they're bedridden, and as they're in bed, they've come to the conviction that they need serious prayer from others in the church, so the person of their own initiative and conviction calls the elders. The elders come bedside. When they arrive, they come to pray for the sick person. That's the main verb there, to pray, and then there's the supportive participle. As you pray, anoint them with oil, and it's implied but not stated at this time that the sick person confesses his or her sins. And then they pray, they anoint the head with oil, kind of as a symbolic meaning to show that God is at work. And then the elders who pray that prayer of faith, God says he'll be raised up off of the bed and the sickness will be healed. It's not a guarantee of every single circumstance because we know God is sovereign in having healing or having sickness for various purposes that he has. Ultimately, God heals everyone in the resurrection, but here... God may mean to leave someone in sickness for a while, but there's a prayer of faith, that conviction that is given to the elders, and they pray, and God then heals them, and if there are any sins, then they have been forgiven, much like the paralytic who was brought to Jesus to be healed, and Jesus said to him, my son, your sins are forgiven, and of course, nobody can see sins being forgiven, since it's an invisible spiritual thing that happens in God's mind as he decides to forgive sins, and they called Jesus blasphemous for saying such a thing. How can he say that a man's sins are forgiven? No one can forgive sins but God alone. You remember that. And then Jesus said, well, what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. And so he healed the paralytic immediately. And that healing was the evidence or the sign that the invisible sin had been forgiven. The point here in all of this is that prayer fits all the circumstances that the congregation faces. It was true of the early church. It's true now as well. As a congregation, we should be bathed in prayer in all circumstances. When we're going through good times, when we're going through hard times, when people are sick, in all these situations, in any other situation that we can imagine, we need to be a people of prayer. Not lip service to prayer, not just the pastoral prayer during the worship service, but prayer in all of these forms. Today we come to reason number two, that we need to pray more. And that's all we're going to cover today. We'll do reason number three next time. I don't know if we'll get to fire and brimstone. The reason here is that people need your prayers. People need your prayers. Would you focus on verse 16 with me? Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. And then here's the purpose, so that you may be healed. The word therefore is there because it's rolling off of verse 15, you see this example of someone who was very sick and maybe needed to confess sins and then confess sins and the elders prayed for them and God raised them up. Therefore, based upon the fact that God responds to people when they genuinely confess their sins and are in a desperate situation and then call on the collective faith of the congregation represented by the elders... God answers and God does great things. Based upon that, extend that teaching principle not just to the bedside of the sick person, but also to the entire congregation. That's what James is saying. Therefore, based upon how God works in that situation, realize that all of you are to be confessing your sins 
to one another. And all of you in the congregation of believers, the saints, are to be praying for who? One another. The one another's come front and center in this verse. Do you see them? There's two one another's there. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Those are not arbitrarily put side by side. They go together. And it goes back to that example. That person, if they had sinned and were sick because of their sins, needed to confess their sins, admit their sins, and then there was prayer that went along with that. And the prayer was powerful because the person was admitting sins. The person was bringing out into the open their sins, and then the prayer of faith came and the healing came. Do you see that? And so now the same pattern for the rest of the congregation. If you want to see healing, you need to confess sins to one another and pray for one another. That's the general basic idea in that verse. Confess your sins to one another. Let's start there. We are to be a congregation, the kind of congregation which tells our faults not just to God, but to one another. So God works more powerfully when believers confess sin. By the way, when you hear confession, you should hear confession and forsaking sin. Because if it's proper confession, there is an understanding about sin that it's not something you want to hang on to anymore. Confession, if it's done right in the heart, has a desire, even though you may not trust the power within you, at least has that desire, please, Lord, now remove this sin from my life. Help me to go and sin no more. That's important. That's important if you want to see the power of God. That's what happens with confession. It's not stated here, but behind this, clearly, we could talk about the holiness of God. If we want the power of God working in the congregation, we need to remember the kind of God we're asking to work powerfully. What kind of a God is He? He's a holy God. Holy. He's set apart from sin. He doesn't like sin. Sin offends God. Your sin. My sin. Let's not talk about sin in abstract. Let's be more specific. My sin offends God. When you sin before God, it offends Him. And He's a holy God. He's always going to be offended by sin. What's true of God in the Old Testament is true of God in the New Testament. What's true of God in the New Testament is true of God throughout church history. It's true of God in the 21st century. God doesn't change. He was holy then. He's holy now. He'll be holy in the future. It always offends God, a holy God, when we sin. And as it offends God, and should and rightly does offend God, for he sees the ugliness of sin, he sees the selfishness of sin, he sees the incongruity of creatures that he made defying his rule and defying his revelation and deciding to live the way they want to and spurning what he says to do. And he's rightly offended by that. And that holds back the blessing, that holds back the power. He's even sent his spirit to live inside of us, to work among us in church. And his spirit is called the what? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is grieved, quenched, anguished, hurt by the sin that happens in a congregation. And that puts a damper on the spiritual vitality and power of a congregation. And so that's why confession becomes so important. 
The idea of confession and sin is so misunderstood by church people. Many folks suppose that confession involves a weekly trip to the confessional booth where the priest listens to a series of admissions on the part of the person. Whether they decide to forsake them or not seems to not be all that important. And so it goes something like this. Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. And they're not speaking to God. They're speaking to the priest. But ritualistic obedience is never what God is after. God is not after you coming to church and singing some songs and standing at the right time and making sure you say the right words in prayer. Many churches, for example, they have the Lord's Prayer recited over and over. They think, well, if I say the Lord's Prayer, then I've prayed. Not really. That's a recitation. Were you praying in your mind and your heart those words? Was it meaningful to you as you were saying the prayer? Then you prayed. If not, then you really weren't praying. You were standing there and your mouth was moving. And it's not really a prayer. God's not after ritualistic obedience. How in any way does that please him? When we just go and think that all he's satisfied with is if we just do a little bit of religion and we've kind of appeased God and then we can go right back into our world and live the way we want to. So it's a complete misunderstanding of the divine being. Confession means we agree. That's what the term means. Uh, we've heard of hamalageo, to confess. Here it's ex hamalageo, really confess. It really means about the same thing. To say the same thing as somebody else in this case. Say what's going on in your life the same way God would say what's going on in your life. Don't redefine it. Don't give it your twist and spin. Say about your attitude and your words and your actions what God would say about him if he was here. Now that's actual confession. I wonder, do you really confess sins to God? Or do you kind of change the idea of confession? If we redefine our sins, and boy, the world does that, but I think believers sometimes do. My real problem is psychological, you see. Would God say that? Does the Bible say that? Or is that you thinking you're smarter than God saying that? What is your real problem? Your real problem is your relationship with God and what's going on in your spirit. That's not psychological. That is spiritual. And if that's the way you confess, you're not confessing sin to God. You're basically thinking that somehow people today have figured out something that Almighty God didn't know when he wrote the Bible. And maybe we can add now a little science on top of the ignorance of Scripture so we can find out what your real problems are. God doesn't agree with you, and he never will. You want to confess your sin, confess it the way God says it. Otherwise, you're not confessing. You're redefining sin. We don't make excuses for sin. Okay, okay, I know I was selfish, but you don't understand the person I live with. I think actually he does. I think actually he does understand who you live with. Yes, I think God actually does understand that. I think Christ can sympathize with all the ways in which you're tempted. Unless maybe you're reading another Bible than I'm reading. He was tempted in every way like, like who? Like we were, yet without what? Sin. I think he understands. No temptation has overtaken you except what is what? Common to man. No, no, I know I sin, but my situation's harder. It's unique. You haven't confessed. You just called God a liar. He says the temptations that you face and the situations that you're in are common to man. That other people face the same things. And guess what? Because of that, I hate to tell you this, but there goes your excuse. It just blew out the window. 
So you thought you had a pretty good one. You could line it all up. Let me tell you, I know I'm doing wrong, but I'm doing wrong because, because, and then you go on with your explanation, and that is not confession. God, you understand why I have this bad attitude, right? No. No, he doesn't. What is confession? It's the opposite of covering up our sins. When we come to church and we have sins and we don't tell anybody, do you know what we're doing? We're covering it up. And when that becomes the practice of a congregation, guess what? That congregation has no power. None. None. Come into church. How's everything? Fine. How's it going in the family? Fine. How's it going at work? Fine. Really? Until you learn to state it the way it is. Yeah, but I tell God. Yeah, but this verse says you got to tell the other believers. Excuse me, did you read it? Let's go to it again. Confess your sins to God. Is that what it says? Confess your sins to who? Who's the one another? Do you need an exposition of the one another? Or do you think you got it? So what does that mean? That means you have to take the thing you're ashamed of, your sin, and you have to bring it out from undercover, and you have to bring it before some believer in the congregation, and you got to tell them, you know what I did? Or do you know what I didn't do? Do you know what I failed to do? Or do you know the attitude that I had? Do you know what I said to so-and-so? I'm ashamed of it, and it was wrong. Do you do that? You know, it might be stuck in your Christian life. You might be stuck because guess what? You don't confess. You have your explanation, and they're different ones. I'm a pastor, right? I mean, I hear them. I hear the explanations. You know, the first there's they know they have to say the Bible thing. So, yeah, I did such and such. And then they go into the but. And, and you have to listen to all that when you're a pastor. And somewhere you have to cut it off and say, really, you're going to keep going on that way? Have you been listening to anything from the pulpit? Do you really read your Bible? You think if Jesus was sitting here in the third chair over here, that he'd be like, wow, look at that. Look at those special situations. That's been rough on you. You really think he thinks like that? So in other words, it's I'm in the presence of God and I have to confess. What do you say about me? <gasps> okay, that's what I have to say about me. And if someone else is out there teaching you differently, you have to block out their voice and you better listen to what God says about you. It's tough, huh? That's tough, right? No progress without humility. Humble yourself in the sight of God and what? He exalts you. Decide not to humble yourself. Decide, you know, it's better if I just keep all of this covered up. Decide to do that, you're not going to make much progress. Do I really have to tell somebody? It looks like it to me. And this doesn't necessarily mean in front of the whole congregation. Some should be in front of the whole congregation. Yes, they should. Some might be to your small group, might be to your community, might be to someone else, a leader that you need to confess a sin to. You've got to bring it out into the open and you've got to be ready to handle the consequences that come with it. Because guess what? If you think, oh, I got that off my chest. I finally told some. Yeah, but are you willing now to do what the spiritual leader wants you to do? Because now they understand what's going on in your heart concerning sin. No, I don't really want to do any of that stuff. I just wanted to let them know that I was sinning. Well, then you're not confessing it. Because God says it's bad and it's going to need some correction and then it's going to need some training and righteousness and there's some Bible verses you're going to need to study and there's going to be some application. I don't really want to do all of that. I just thought if I came and confessed it, you know, it'd be all right. It's not really confession, I guess, because you didn't think it was all that bad. That's not what God says about it. In the Bible, confession means you agree with God about your spiritual condition. It's much more than an outward statement. It starts with an inward agreement. The mouth 
has to express what's in the heart. I gave some words of a true confession at one of our Lord's Supper, and I'm going to repeat it. It should sound something like this. Okay, God, you're right. You're right. I am a sinner, and I did sin in that way. And since I'm a sinner, I know I deserve your punishment. I am guilty. Prayer is an extremely powerful tool that God has given us for communicating with Him. Does your prayer life have room for improvement? In today's message, Pastor Tom shared about the principle of confession. Confession is a difficult but necessary part of a healthy prayer life. It requires that you not only confess your sin to God, but also to other trusted believers. It's important that you share your sin, but then also that you take action to turn away from committing the sin that you're confessing. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leek, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit HopeBible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. Next time on Discover Hope, tune in to hear Pastor Tom teach an example of how to pray a confessional prayer. You'll also hear more about the importance of prayer and how King David used prayer to confess his sins. God desires for you to utilize prayer to grow your relationship with Him, and confession should be a frequent part of that. Thanks for tuning in today for Discover Hope. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Pastor Tom, visit HopeBibleChurch.org. There's much more to learn from the book of James, so we hope you'll join us again right here on Discover Hope.